Hello, is this thing on? Of course it is. They can definitely hear us. Yeah, we're in our fourth season. There's no silencing us now. Welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion on health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And I'm Sarah Fung, and we are your podcast hosts. Please make sure that you subscribe to our new YouTube channel where you can watch our podcast in video format. Please hit the subscribe button. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, leave us a rating and review. everyone. Thank you for listening and tuning in week to week on the Green Nurse Podcast. We have a really good episode and I think this is actually very timely. There's been so much about true crime, about fake nursing licenses, and it's time that we as nurses, we talk about what's happening because it's it's very scary. And also talking, pulling in, you know, the, the true crime elements, the quality improvement elements, and how do we make the system better? So we do have a wonderful guest. I'm so happy that he's back, an expert in his field. But before I get into it, Sarah, please introduce our guest today. For all you Gritty Nurse fans that have been listening for a while, we've had Bruce Sackman on before. We love Bruce. And he actually sends us emails all the time with uh, cases about true crime and things in the news. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Bruce. He served as a special agent in charge, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, Office of Inspector General, Criminal Investigations Division, Northeast Field Office until May 2005 when he retired after 32 years of service. In this capacity, he he was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving veteran affairs from West Virginia all the way to Maine. During his tenure, he was involved in hundreds of investigations involving allegations of fraud, corruption, false claims, thefts, patient assaults, pharmaceutical drug diversions, and suspicious hospital deaths. Bruce is a former self-employed licensed private investigator in New York City, specializing in healthcare-related matters. Under contract, he had directed major investigations for a, a large New York metropolitan regional healthcare system. He is also the co-author of the book Behind the Murder Curtain, Special Agent Bruce Sackman Hunts Doctors and Nurses Who Kill Our Veterans. Welcome, Bruce. We're so, so glad to have you back again. And I'm so happy to be back again because there's so much happening. Oh, my gosh. Yes, in the last <laughs> yes. year, especially since we last had you on. Some of which has even surprised me after all these years of doing in these investigations. So I'm very excited to be back and start chatting about these issues. Yeah, and I think that one one of the stories that has come up recently since we last had you on was a nurse named Charles Cullen, and he actually has been featured in two Netflix series. So there was one that came out, it was back in October called The Good Nurse, and it was with a couple of famous actors, and then there was another one which was call, called Capturing the Killer Nurse, which came out in November. Maybe, Bruce, you could just tell us a little bit about Charles Cullen. I know it says here he's, he's murdered many, many, maybe even up to hundreds of patients during yeah, his 16-year career. Right? Yeah, yeah maybe you could give us a little synopsis. I don't really know where those numbers come from. <laughs> I mean, but first of all, have you read the book, The Good Nurse? So I, I'll be honest. I haven't read it. I, it's, better, go ahead. it's better than the movie. Oh. I'm telling you, okay. it's better than the movie. 
The book is outstanding. And I wrote a book about serial killers. And I'm telling you, this book on Charles Collin, The Good Nurse, is outstanding. All right. A book to add to our list. Yeah. And that everybody to read, first of all, because it's even better than the TV show. Talk about Charles Cullen, and let's talk about the whole world of medical serial killers and why someone like Charles Cullen was so successful. And you know what? It's not really that unique as to what happened with Charles Cullen. As we know, Charles Cullen was a nurse that worked in numerous hospitals. And when the first hospital suspected something, they didn't say anything to the second hospital. They were just so happy that he moved on. They just washed their hands of it, which went on to the third hospital, to the fourth hospital, to the fifth hospital. And this is why medical serial killers, and not only Charles Cullen, but medical serial killers throughout the world have been able to get away with this is particularly disturbing, but not unusual, is that some of the hospitals in the world of Charles Cullen did some pretty good internal investigation, and they came out with considerable evidence that he may have been intentionally harming patients, but they never called the police. They never called the authorities. In fact, the way the authorities learned about it, and this is also very common throughout the world of medical surgery, is not from the hospital management, but it's from a courageous nurse, whistleblower, who actually called the authorities, in this case, the good nurses, it's known, and let them know. Otherwise, the police would have never known. Look, I would have never known about all the medical serial killers that I had investigated. If it wasn't for the courageous, outstanding, usually nurses, sometimes physicians, who come forth and make these allegations after being totally dissed by management. In fact, there's a case going on right now in England about a nurse named Lucy Letby. Have you been seeing this, following this? She's accused of killing babies. The trial is ongoing right now as we speak. And one of the doctors gets up, and I can actually read it to you, and he says, I went to management with my concerns, and management poo-pooed it. And I went back to management with our concerns, and they poo-pooed it because no one wants to have a reputation in their hospital that someone on their staff is intentionally murdering somebody. You what they hope is that person will just leave and go on. Now, in the case of Charles Cullen, which was terrible, when the police got involved in the investigation and they went back to the previous hospitals, the previous hospitals still refused to work with the police. They refused to give them copies of their internal reports. Can you imagine that as a, as a patient? Can you really imagine that? So Cullen represents... Not really an extreme. You know, if you're not familiar with the world of medical serial killers, you say, wow, how could he work for eight, 10 hospitals? That number is pretty high. But there are cases throughout the world where medical serial killers were suspected by management, but they were so happy to see that person move on to the next hospital that they didn't say a word to the police and they didn't say a word to the next hospital. As a matter of fact, there's a case in Germany which I work with the German police on, a fellow by the name of Niles Hogel. He's responsible for killing over 100 patients. As a matter of fact, suspected of killing closer to 300 patients, actually. 
And when Hospital A suspected something, they never said anything to Hospital B. Well, the German prosecutor did something there that has never happened anywhere in the world before or since. The German prosecutor actually filed charges against the managers in those previous hospitals that knew something, suspected something, and never called the police and allowed Hogel to go on to the next hospital and to the next hospital. Yeah, that that's that's so crazy. I think there's a couple really important points that you touched on, Bruce, that kind of give us, myself and Sarah, thoughts to pause in terms of even just like that aspect of nurse whistleblowing. It is not respected in our spaces. When nurses come forward with complaints, and especially when nurses come forward with complaints, whether it's another nurse or a physician, we do get often poo-pooed away and, and not respected. Or sometimes we're the ones that are disciplined when we bring these issues forward. So it is a huge, huge problem within our nursing profession and within the, the medical and healthcare profession. And there was another thing that I wanted to touch on too that you had mentioned. And it was it really surrounded the whole fact of this nurse being able to go from hospital to hospital and the fact that hospitals were blocking the investigative process. I mean, there's this weird thing. I don't want to say specifically in quality improvement, but just this whole like protect ourselves first from a hospital standpoint. So like, we don't want the litigation. We don't want to deal with this. So they'd rather protect themselves than actually, you know, protect the public and that's that's really scary i think that's why we have college bodies that are supposed to be protecting the public but they don't they don't have the information if you know there aren't again those nurse whistleblowers to say that there are problems we are considered nurse whistleblowers and we've we've dealt with our own issues with people kind of calling us out and saying we're unprofessional for saying the things that we are. But at the, the end of the day, we do it because of patient safety. But it is a huge, huge issue, Bruce. Yeah, and just to set, just to add in my perspective from hospital leadership, I think a lot of organizations view themselves as self-governing. So like yeah. whatever happens within the hospital, we'll deal with it, we'll handle it. So maybe that's why, and I'm not saying this is right, there's this reluctance to involve the authorities. But also a lot of organizations are wanting to save their face. So they think that if they employ a serial killer, then it's going to reflect poorly on them. When in reality, we know a lot of them are charming. They are able to fabricate explanations for why they've, you know, had so many different jobs. But if these hospitals were to talk to each other, they would realize that it's not really about blame. It's it's about like, let's do the right thing, which is to make sure this person can't continue to murder patients. That's kind of my perspective on all of this. And also there's the Good Samaritans law, right? So if you were to step in and save somebody, you're protected. But I feel like there aren't laws or any anything to protect nurses that speak up and yeah. like a lot of them their careers kind of fizzled out yeah they a lot of nurses, because you know, of what yeah. they were trying to do which is doing the right thing and i haven't read this book but i'm i'm interested as to maybe you shouldn't give this away bruce but i'm curious as to what does happen to that good nurse at the end yeah and and maybe even we before we get into this just bruce how would you go about investigating this because we saw all of the like through the story and how the story was told all of those kind of blockages that were put up that hospitals were kind of being closed-lipped about I've seen it within my, my own various different practices when it comes to certain cases that, you know, we want to deal with it internally. But again, like it's important to have that external party or that, that third party kind of coming in. How, how would you go about investigating this, something like this? Well, I'll tell you how I started my, my very first medical serial killer case. Please do. Now, I was, as you said, the agent in charge of the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General, and I had an entire smorgasbord of cases that we can choose from, you know, drug diversions, 
theft of equipment, medical fraud, contract fraud, procurement fraud, bribery, you name it, because hospitals are small cities. They do a lot of procurement and a lot of bad things can happen. Then all of a sudden, one day I get a call that kind of changed my life. I get a call from the chief of psychiatry at the Northport Long Island VA Medical Center. And she said, you know, Bruce, you're not going to believe this, but there's a doctor working here. And there's a news story that he spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers. And I looked at the phone. I said, what is, is today April 1st? Is this like an April Fool's Day joke or something? <laughs> Are you kidding? You mean this guy passed a government background investigation and he's working in the hospital, but he spent time in prison for poisoning his co-workers? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So... I actually went to speak with this guy, and he was, as you pointed out, charming, handsome. I mean, the last person. You know what? You'd say, what a catch. I have this handsome doctor (laughs) she brought home. Who would ever think that he was responsible for murdering maybe 60 people for the world? So the whole question was now, how do we go about investigating this? Now, I had never done one of these cases before. You know, I was basically white-collar crime or drug diversion investigator, but homicides in hospitals? I never heard of such a thing. So my boss actually hooked me up with this actually world-famous medical examiner named Dr. Michael Bodden. And he said, Bruce, this is the way we do these things, he says. Because this doctor, his name was Michael Swango, because Michael Swango was in this hospital for a brief period of time, we need to pull the medical records of every patient that was in that hospital during the time he was there. And we're going to assemble a team. And this team is going to consist of physicians who are expert in chart reviews. So they can review the chart and they could say, you know what? We don't see why this patient should have expired when he did, right? A toxicologist to look at all the tox work that was done. And at that time, a relatively new profession called forensic nursing, which is a phenomenal profession. Yep, we talked about it. These are nurses that are trained in both forensics and nursing. And let me tell you, they were nothing short of sensation. In fact, they were the ones that kind of zeroed in on who the patients would be that we should be looking at and why they may have expired unexpectedly. Because one of the things I had learned that, and you you guys know this as nurses, that many of these patients that we looked at, you know, death was expected. The family knew, the nurses knew, the doctors. But there were a few patients where death was totally unexpected. And natural death was explained to me, sort of like shutting off a fan and it gradually, gradually slows down. But these people expired. It's like turning off a light bulb. They were bright one minute and dark the next. Totally unexpected by family and by the nursing staff and by physicians. And that's who we zeroed in on. So we came out with about six really good cases that this team had identified for us. The next thing you have to do is you have to go to the families and ask for permission to exhume their bodies because they're all buried, all right? And now imagine getting a visit like this. Uh, hello, my name is Bruce Sackman. I'm with the Department of Veterans Affairs Inspector General's office. We have reason to believe that your father's death 
may have been of a suspicious nature. Could we have your permission to go to the cemetery and dig up his body and run some tests? Imagine getting a visit like that. Not the kind of visit you get every day, is it? No, I think that's crazy. Like The families were fantastic. They were amazing. Sometimes the families actually wanted to come to the cemetery and watch it, right? Oh, wow. And we would bring flowers for the daughter or the, for the wife or something, you know. Very, very respectful. But, I mean, that's a very hard thing to see. Could you imagine going to the cemetery and seeing your dad or your brother's body being... I mean, when you when you bury them, you think that's the last you'll ever see of it. You don't expect yeah. to, you know, have all this kind of resurface, especially under suspicious pretenses. And then I found myself for the first time in the morgue with the bodies being cut open and examined. And uh, Dr. Bonin shows me this heart and he says, you see this heart, Bruce? He says, this person didn't die of myocardial infarction or a heart disease. That's a catch-all that they just used. He said, there's something else here. So then we had to run the toxicology. And the toxicology is a lot harder in embalmed bodies, right? And the question was, can you find uh, certain drugs in embalmed tissues? And we had to go to a private lab uh, because the FBI lab didn't want to do this for us. So we had to go to a private lab called the Reader's Lab, which is the largest private forensic lab in, in America. And I said, are you going to be able to find these drugs in embalmed tissue? And Dr. Reader said, and remember, I'm a layperson. And then Dr. Reed said, oh, don't worry, Bruce. He says, we have this new machine. It's called the High Performance Liquid Chromatography Tandem Mass Spectrometer. Wow. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> he said, don't worry, Bruce. You wouldn't understand. You couldn't understand, but it works. And like we take a sample and it goes around and around and we analyze it. So they came out and they determined that there was epinephrine, which is adrenaline, and succinylcholine, and these are two drugs that are commonly used, particularly succinylcholine. There's some ongoing cases right now involving succinylcholine. And these drugs were never prescribed, never prescribed. So this is what we believe to be the cause. Well, the next thing you know, Michael Swango, who had fled after I interviewed him to Africa and killed a number of people in Africa, including women and pregnant women. He had to return to renew his passport. And that's when we arrested him, but not for murdering anybody because we didn't have the evidence at that time. We actually arrested him for what's every federal agent's favorite crime, lying to the government, lying to me. He lied to me, so he got arrested and he got, uh, well, I forgot now, two or three years in jail which gave us the opportunity to do this investigation. And then when he's ready to come out, he thinks he's just going to hop on the plane and go back and start killing you. Not so fast. Well, a couple of things happened. One, we had done this investigation. And the second thing is we had entered into an extradition treaty with the government of Zimbabwe. So we said to Swango, look, even if we go to trial and lose, we're just going to put you on the plane and drop you off on the tarmac in Zimbabwe where there's an arrest warrant for you for killing women and children in prison. So he pled guilty. And then it's time for the sentencing. And this is when it really gets emotional because that's when the families show up. And the families have an opportunity to talk to the judge. And they address the audience. And they say, you know, had dad had served in the military only to be murdered at a veteran's hospital. It's very moving. 
you know, sometimes we forget the whole victim family side of this thing. You know, we talk about the science and the investigation and the toxin this and that. But all these cases have a very deep human side to it. You know, when I talk about this, this Niles Hogo in Germany who killed over 100 people, there are families here. There are people involved. Not just, you know, I so, someone once said, I think it was some Russian, he once said that one murder is a tragedy. A million murders is a statistic. We can't, you know, we forget there's a whole human side to this thing. And you see the human side when you deal with the families. And you, look, you guys see that that all the time. But the general public, they say, oh, you know, Swango, he killed 60 people. Hogel, he killed over 100 people. There's a, a, a physician in England who's allegedly killed over 300 people. It's not just the numbers. It's the whole human side side, it's the family to this. But without this doctor calling me and telling me about this guy Swango, I would have never known. There was another there was a VA nurse, a VA nurse in Massachusetts, who I investigated and was convicted of killing a number of veterans with epinephrine. We found out about this through nurse whistleblowers. You know, after the trial and after she was found guilty and those nurses returned back to work, do you think they were heroes or do you think just the opposite? You know what their co-worker said to them? What the hell did you do to us? You know, now all of a sudden the reputation of our hospital is not how we save people. Not all the wonderful work we do, but hey, that's where the serial killer was. You don't want to go to that hospital. You don't want to ever go there. They had a nurse serial killer. Did they ever thank you for saving lives? Thank you for helping convict a murderer? No, that was not the attitude of their co-workers at all. It's very, very difficult. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of courage to be a whistleblower in the medical world. A lot of courage. Probably the worst story that I know is about these two nurses in a place called Kermit, Texas. Kermit, Texas is a small little town in the oil basin. It's very hard to recruit doctors and nurses out there. Nobody really wants to live out. So these two nurses who happen to be the entire compliance department, they go to management and they say, you know, we think this doctor is harming people. We think he's a terrible doctor. And management said, you know how hard it is to find doctors in Kermit, Texas? Why, we have to go all the way to the Philippines. I mean, to Ireland to find them. So you know what, nurses? Keep your mouth shut and go back to your little office and be quiet. And these two nurses said, what the hell do we do now? We feel we have this obligation. We have to do something. But we went to management and they told us to shut up. So what did they do? One nurse says, look, I have an idea. Let's send an anonymous letter to the Texas Medical Board about this doctor. The doctor gets wind of it, and boy, is he pissed. Boy, is he pissed. So what does he do? He calls the local sheriff, who happens to be one of his patients. And the local sheriff has does an investigation, does a search warrant of their hospital computers, determines that they were the authors of this anonymous letter, and actually has them arrested and prosecuted for misuse of official information. Case goes to trial. Jury's out for about 20 minutes and comes back and says, what, are you kill it? kidding me? These nurses 
officers deserve a medal for what they did. Right. Be criminally prosecuted, but what kind of message does that send out? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Did you hear about those nurses in Texas? Do you want that to happen to you? You know, it's often that management will have this attitude. What's the matter? You don't like working here? You know what can happen if this gets out? We could all lose our jobs. You know, there was a hospital in New Jersey where uh, one doctor was murdering not his patients, but the patients of another doctor because he didn't like that doctor. Wow. Oh my gosh. You know what happened? The word got out. It got in the press. The hospital had to change its name three times and eventually went out of business. You want that to happen to you, nurse? Oh, and by the way, nurse, when you're bringing these allegations, is your background so perfect? I mean, is your license and everything up to snuff? If we drug tested you right now, are you going to test positive or anything? See, the reason why we ask that is because when you make these allegations, you're kind of like sort of like under investigation yourself. But you know, I, I think that I think that with all these cases, there is like a running theme, right? Very similar to the the Charles Cullen case, and and the whole idea between like nurse whistleblowers and you know hospital administration kind of trying to cover their tracks. There's all these red flags. Did you catch some of the red flags, Sarah? Too. Yeah, like I think I think Bruce, you go over some of these red flags in your mm-hmm. book, but one of the ones I remember you talking about was when a certain nurse is on shift, the, the death rate goes up, and yes. when the nurse when the nurse yeah, in yeah, question yeah. isn't working, it goes down. So maybe you could expand on some of these red flags. This happens in almost every case throughout the world. As a matter of fact, some of the cases ongoing right now, including the Lucy Ledby case, that's the way they get started. The problem is how many people have to expire before somebody wakes up, you know, but almost every case throughout the world is this way. Every time Nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Nurse Bruce takes a vacation, the death rate goes down. Now, does that mean that Nurse Bruce is a serial killer? No. No, it doesn't. Maybe Nurse Bruce has the most complex cases. Maybe there's another reason for that. But you know what's interesting about Nurse Bruce's cases? Not only does he have the highest death rate, but many of these patients were not expected to expire when they did. And when you combine those two things, then you've got a real problem on your hands. A real problem. And there are many cases ongoing. You know, there are more medical serial killer cases ongoing now than I could ever remember ever, including one in Ontario. You're familiar with that one, Brian Nadler? No. No, but we we knew about a different one, Elizabeth Wetlaufer. Oh. Dr. Brian Nadler is accused of murdering four COVID patients. What? What? (laughs) Oh, my God. We got to do an episode about this. What? Okay. Maybe you could quickly tell us a little bit about this doctor. As uh, crazy as we are. Oh, my goodness. You got four. Check it out. Brian Nadler, N-A-D-L-E-R. He's um, this month and next month, I think, going to be the preliminary inquiries onto the case. That's happening right now. And that's not the only COVID-related serial killer. There's one in Germany as well as a physician who's accused of killing some COVID patients. So we'll see what happens. But watch that one, Brian Nadler, in Ontario, Canada. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Ronaldo Ortiz accused of injecting nerve blocking agents and other drugs into patient IV bears. Now, you know what's what's interesting here is that this is a somewhat unique kind of motive for him. Apparently, he hated management and he felt that management was constantly picking on him and that his co-workers were picking on him and he's better and smarter than they are. So he's going to 
punished them. And allegedly, because this case is still going on, allegedly he punished them by putting poison in their IV bags. Known as a medical terrorist, according to the prosecutor. Check this guy out, Dr. Ronaldo Rivera Ortiz. Oh my gosh. You know, with, with all of these cases, I think the big question that, you know, nurses, other folks that listen to our podcast, administrators, health health leaders, what are the things that we can do to prevent this? Like, I think we touched on a couple things. So like one, I think first and foremost, we need to have policies that protect nurse whistleblowers. Like I think that, you know, I've been on shift where I've had that gut feeling about certain things. And I think sometimes we need to trust that. We need to trust those gut feelings when, you know, maybe something seems suspicious or or as young folks say now, say they say sus. If we start seeing that or feeling that something is suspicious, we should maybe start even documenting it, keeping some files and records in terms of what we might be seeing. And we need to report it. There are internal reporting systems. We need to use those to our advantage. And I think the other piece, and maybe Sarah, you can please jump in afterwards, is there is there was no system to really capture the movement of, you know, these healthcare professionals from one hospital to another. So like they might have done the some crimes at one hospital, then they moved and then there's no real follow up. So I think I had mentioned this before. There's like no CODIS system for hospitals. So essentially like in the 80s, the reason why a lot of these or 80s and 70s, why a lot of these prolific serial killers got away was because there was no system across various different state lines to account for the crimes that they committed. The, the police departments weren't talking. And I think that maybe hospital systems need to have something very similar to CODIS where hospital systems talk to each other in relation to something that, you know, if a nurse comes from another hospital and there was something suspicious, that those conversations are had. Right. And I'm just wondering from my perspective, like if all of these hospitals in the good nurse, in Charles Collins case, if they all suspected or even had proof that he was murdering patients, was there nothing legally that said they had to report this to the authorities? Like I'm kind of wondering about that aspect as well. So not only was he able to go from one hospital to another, but they were all able to keep this internally to the point where you said, Bruce, they were not even willing to turn over the documentation they had. I think there needs to be some accountability on the hospitals, but also some understanding that it's not finger pointing. It's just really to prevent something like this from happening again. And just from a really practical perspective, I'm like, do people not ask for references anymore when you apply for a job? Clearly, clearly this is something that you you guys bring up so many good points. I don't even know where to begin, but I'll I'll, I'll try to remember all those outstanding points you all brought up. First thing is in the last uh, medical center that I I worked at, we treated our whistleblowers like Fort Knox gold. I'll tell you why we did it. For our own selfish reasons, because we didn't want them to run outside to the outside authorities. So we wanted our whistleblowers to feel that we're listening to them and that we're protecting them and we're doing the right thing. Now, in in the United States, particularly when it comes to fraud cases, there's there's something they call a key TAM lawsuit. And what that is, uh, it goes actually back to English common law, but in the United States, it goes back to the Civil War. And it gives an individual a right to sue on behalf of himself and the government. And the way it works is, let's say you're working um, in a hospital and you know that the hospital is intentionally defrauding Medicare or Medicaid. Well, you could go to your boss and maybe you'll get a certificate suitable for framing or something. Or you could go to a lawyer and file what they call a key TAM lawsuit. A key TAM lawsuit is filed under seal. Now, when I was in 
in the government, I had seven of these ongoing at any time. And it's like a gift to investigators. And what it says is that you know that the XYZ hospital is intentionally defrauding the government by A, B, C, and D. If the government comes in and investigates and finds the hospital, the court finally finds the hospital, you get a percentage of that money as a reward. Well, (laughs) that is a great, great incentive for people to do that, particularly if they feel that management is poo-pooing them, is not supporting them. So for our own selfish reasons, we treated all of our whistleblowers with Fort Knox gold. All right. So that's that's like Fort Knox. And that is so important. And any management who doesn't do that is really hurting themselves. Now, look, not every 99 percent of the whistleblowers are outstanding, but there's people who take advantage of everything. Some people want to cloak themselves in whistleblower protection because they really haven't been good employees and they've done some bad things. And that's a shame. But, you know, there's always a small percentage of people that will take advantage of it. But in, in my 40 plus years of doing this, the overwhelming majority of whistleblowers really have a lot of important things to say. And it's important for management, if you're listening out there, take it from me, protect your whistleblowers, let them feel confident that they can go to you with complaints, and then you investigate it. Maybe there's something there, maybe there's not. But for God's sake, you should encourage them because otherwise they're going to get frustrated. And this has happened throughout the world. They're going to get frustrated. They're going to go to outside. And I know even in, even in, in the VA, the management there, and there's no profit motive, you know, in the government hospital for this. But so why did they do it? Because they were so afraid that when the inspector general came in, not only are they going to look at this one particular allegation, but they're going to open up the door and start looking at everything. everything. Yep. But we don't want them to come in here, okay? So look, management, treat your whistleblowers with like Fort Knox gold. Now to a a second thing that brought up, as a result of the Cohen case, the law in New Jersey and a number of states, not every state, but I think over 20 states has changed that enable hospitals now, Hospital A, to report to Hospital B their suspicions without being sued. So many times, out of all these tragedies, some good comes out. In the case of the Cohen case, that good came out. In the case of the Swango case, the world of medical credentialing improved dramatically. Now, and I speak in front of groups of medical credentialers all the time. That's probably the number one group that I speak to because nobody wants to hire a Cohen or a Swango or anybody again. Now, that being said, you could still do all your due diligence. In fact, when you hire the person, they may be fined and something could happen, change in their life. It could become drug addicted or God knows what. And then they could turn bad, which you can't blame the credentialing people for, but particularly during a pandemic. Now, let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. As you know, during the pandemic, there's a tremendous shortage of the high burnout, totally understandable, you know, a high burnout of medical professionals and a lot of traveling nurses. And traveling nurses, the majority of them were really outstanding, but there were are a few bad apples in this world of traveling nurses and the firms that hire them and place them did not really do such good vetting. But look, I understand when the enemy's coming over the hill and you need soldiers, you don't have time to carefully vet every soldier. Right, you right, want to right. stop an enemy from coming over the hill. So 
well, the last case I, I had at uh, my, my, my last hospital was a traveling nurse who had a history of stealing drugs and stole drugs from our hospital. You know, and there was very poor vetting, but it was in the middle of a crisis. They, you know, I don't have to tell you how overloaded all the hospital was. I mean, they had beds outside. They had beds in Central Park. I mean, the whole thing was just, I get it, but medical credentialing has improved dramatically. So that's another good thing. So a couple of good things that come out is one, the law has changed a number of states. So hospitals don't have to worry about being sued for this. And two, medical credentialing has improved dramatically. And I also think that whistleblower protection is starting to improve. There are a number of organizations, there's Whistleblowers of America and other organizations that are out there to protect whistleblowers. But without them, I would say that the overwhelming majority of medical serial killer cases would have never been known to the police. How, how are we going to know about it? We don't work in the hospital. If the hospital doesn't call us and tell and look, most cops, myself included, never wanted to work in a hospital. First of all, we don't really understand the law, you know, that HIPAA law we have in the United States, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. What records can we get? What records can't we get? Do we need a subpoena? Do we need a court order? Are there some records we still can't get? And what about the science? You know, look, most cops don't become cops because we're good in chemistry and biology. Right, right. <laughs> We really kind of depend on you guys, and we don't really know the politics. We don't really know. So, you know what? We have enough crimes outside, but we don't really want to go into the hospital. And not only that, but by the time we go in the hospital, we'll probably be faced like with something like this. Thank you very much, officer, for your concerns. You know, we were as concerned as you were here in the hospital. So we put together a board of our very best medical experts, and they all came to the conclusion that all these patients died as a result of their natural disease processes. Now, if you want to continue the investigation after, you know, I gave you a, a knock yourself out, but uh, we don't think there's anything there. And the police departments are just going to say, well, thank you very much, you know, Mr. President of the hospital, Mr. Chief Medical Officer, thank you very much. And we'll just go on to the next case. And that's another thing that enables these people. Because, because when you look at your typical serial killer, if there is such a thing, maybe they kill seven or eight people, but they're actually amateurs compared to my medical serial killers. I mean, the majority of them kill 40, 50, 60 people. And how are they able to do this? Because they go from hospital to hospital. And the hospital that suspected something never says anything to the next hospital. And that's a real tragedy. Yeah, I, I want to circle back to one thing that you said, and this actually dovetails really nicely into our next story. We only have actually about another 10 minutes, so hopefully we can get to, and we could probably expand Maybe on it again. Maybe we could just do like a part two. And yeah, we definitely the, get to a part uh, two. Next one. But the other piece that you talked about is all of the credentialing that you did. And we had a story, we kind of touched on it in a previous episode talking about Florida nurses license. I'm going to actually hand it over to Sarah for her to give a quick description and then we could ask some questions about like, how did something like this occur? Because credentialing and it really understanding where people get their licensure mm -hmm. is really important. So Sarah, take yeah. it away. 
Yeah, this was actually a big deal uh, in the States, and it kind of traveled up to where we are as well. So Operation Nightingale. This was a federal investigation into what officials say was a wire fraud scheme in which several now-closed Florida nursing schools sold phony uh, nursing diplomas and transcripts from 2016 all the way up to 2022. 25 defendants, including school owners and alleged recruiters, have been charged. U.S. Attorney for Southern District of Florida, I'm going to butcher this name, Markensky, LaPointe announced in late January. So this involved 7,600 students who paid an average of $15,000 for bogus diplomas, according to prosecutors. Around 2,400 of these people then passed a licensing exam to obtain jobs as registered nurses and licensed practical nurses or vocational nurses in multiple states. So Bruce, I know you're really up on the news and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this story. And we knew it blew you away. So and and if you've had all the cases you've had and this is blown you away, we're, we're taking it back as well. Well, let me tell you something. It was back in January and I'm opening up uh, the New York Times and I'm sipping my coffee and I'm reading this story about like 7,800 bogus nursing licenses. And let me tell you, I literally choked on my coffee. I could not believe this. Now, look, during my career, on occasion, I had investigated physicians and nurses, particularly some foreign, because, you know, with foreign doctors and nurses, it was very hard to verify some of their credentials. You know, they come from countries, it's difficult to verify their credentials, but it was rare. It was rare. And no one, I swear, no one on the planet Earth has more respect for nurses than I do. And I've arrested a number of them, but I found out about them through the honest, hardworking, dedicated nurses who are really pissed off that somebody in their profession was doing something bad, you know? And right, you know right. How hard it is, how tough it is, how smart you have to be to be a nurse. And I read this and it actually hurt me. It actually hurt me to read something like this, that a scandal of this size, of this proportion, had actually occurred. And you know what? I think some of the patients are going to say, um, how do we find out who these nurses were? And that was that one of the nurses that treated my dad? Because, you know, many times families think that they didn't get really the best care when they probably did get the best care. But because dad and mom had expired, they think maybe something happened. But if you think that, rightly or wrongly, and then you read that the nurse who treated your dad had bogus credentials, you're going to, again, it gets back to the families. I mean, imagine how you're going to react to this. This was such a terrible terrible scandal. Now, why did it happen? It happened because at one time, these schools actually were licensed and credentialed schools. And they actually had some people attend these schools and graduate legitimately. But everybody who went to that school, either legitimately or who purchased a bogus credential, is now under suspicion. It'd be very, very hard for those people who actually went through the school when it was credentialed to make the case that they, they, they didn't buy this. They actually went through the school. And, you know, something like this happened with the COVID vaccine. Here on Long Island, someone was arrested for giving out those little certificates saying that patients were vaccinated, you know, nurses were vaccinated because right, right. when in fact they weren't. Yeah, but the skin some, happened everywhere. But some of them actually were vaccinated. 
But if you went to that particular location and got that card, you had to prove to your employer that you actually got the vaccine and you didn't get one of these bogus cards. So the same thing here for some of the nurses who actually legitimately went through the program now, they're going to have a tough time trying to convince the authorities that their license is real. And, you know, a number of people at the VA, I think there was something like 800 nurses, if my number is correct, nationwide, government hospital, government hospital, with all the vetting that the government's supposed to do, hired these people. And I think the reason why the credentialing people allowed this is because at one point in time, the schools were credentialed, then they lost their credentialing, and they probably, the people didn't realize that these schools were no longer in business or no longer credentialed credentialed or their credentials were suspended. And that's why they allowed it to happen. But this is so terrible. It taints the whole profession. It does. Yeah, It's just one of the worst things. One of the worst things I, I have ever read because of the numbers involved. And you know, look, you have this with lawyers, with other professionals, people claim to be lawyers, uh, you know, on very rare occasion. But this wholesale scale is something I had never seen. Before, and I hope to God I never see it again. It's just so unfair to all those honest, hardworking, dedicated nurses who have to open up the newspaper and read something like this. It's, it's- yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's really troubling to me. And I also I also think like at the end of the day, who does the onus fall on? Is it on the nurses that got the fake credentials? Is it on the school? Is it on the hospital that hired them? I think there's a fair amount of finger pointing happening, but I'm just wondering, Bruce, what your thoughts are. Where does the onus really Well, prosecution came, you know, the prosecutors charged the school officials that enabled this to happen. They have not charged anyone who actually received the bogus uh, certificates and used that because a number of them were able to still pass the national nursing exam, even with their bogus credentials. But you see, the way the law reads, there's something called mail fraud and there's wire fraud. And this is the way it works. Years ago, before all this electronic stuff that we had, it was mail fraud. In other words, if you put a document in the mail knowing that it was fraudulent and used to defraud somebody, that was a mail fraud. It used to be very common. But since mail is not used that much anymore and the wires are used now, electronics, the same law applies to that. So if I email you or somehow electronically send you a bogus certificate of nursing and you use that, well, the person who generated it and send it is guilty of wire fraud, but actually you're guilty of wire fraud as well for utilizing it to defraud somebody. But I haven't seen any anyone charged yet who actually received it. I've seen people fired and terminated, you know, but I haven't seen anybody charged. But technically, yeah, they're guilty of a fraud. Yeah, like in this news release, it says that in New York, over 900 nurses were told to either surrender their licenses or prove they were properly educated. So it doesn't sound like either they've been charged, but their licenses are now on the line. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot that's still left unanswered. And I think that there's still a lot that we have to try to find out in relation to this. And I think that, you know, we we need to answer those questions and there has to be some form of accountability and justice with this particular case because we can't see this happening again. I think, again, a 
lot of nurses were very, very upset by this. I think it points to our leadership, right? Like we need to make sure that the people who are credentialing and doing these things are doing the right thing. And again, that people aren't being misleading because nursing is supposed to be the most trusted profession and we can't have things like this happening. See, I don't know if there exists a list of these 7,800 nurses or whatever you want to refer to them at this point who uh, receive these bogus. So if somebody shows up at your hospital and maybe they went to another school afterwards and they got another legitimate degree, but I'd still be leery about hiring somebody that spent $15,000 to buy a bogus certificate. Even if they went back and got a regular degree, they would tell me something about their character. I don't think I'd want them working in my hospital. Yeah, it's definitely a very, very tricky situation. And and again, I we will be following it very closely and trying to find out, you know, uh, what will the outcome be? Because I think, again, like I said, lots of questions unanswered. But we, we had a story of a good nurse. We had a story about a not so great nurses or I don't know if I want to call them all bad nurses, but maybe not so great nurses until the full jury's out. But again, we want to thank you so much for coming on the Green Nurse Podcast, sharing your knowledge and expertise and talking about true crime because again, it is our passion as well. And we hope that, you know, some people can take some things away and really learn from some of these cases again. If we don't learn from our mistakes, we'll be doomed to repeat and do them all over again. Bruce, you're an excellent, excellent storyteller and I highly recommend anyone listening or watching to buy your book. Bruce, do you want to tell people where they can buy your book just so if they're interested, they can get it? Yeah, it's on Amazon, you know, or most of the major booksellers. It's called Behind the Murder Curtain and it's all true. And the stories and their multiple stories are very similar to the Cohen case. Only they worked in government hospitals and they were vetted by the government and they still were convicted of murdering a number of our nation's heroes. And it tells you how we did the investigation. It talks about those brave nurse whistleblowers and physician whistleblowers who came forward to tell us about these cases that we would have never known about if we were waiting for management to call because management never called. Right. Right. Thank you again so much for coming on our show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So if you're watching our new YouTube channel, make sure that you subscribe, um, that you follow us. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, any of the major platforms, make sure you like and subscribe and leave us a review. If you want to drop us a line, you can go to grittynurse.com or you can email us at grittynurses at gmail.com. So thank you so much for listening and see you next time.